All right. Um, you know, over the last few years, I have uh, at least four or five times had people call me because they had a certain disease and they couldn't get a certain antidote or a certain medicine that they wanted. And um, they really wanted that medicine. And unfortunately, in light of the things that have happened in our country, some doctors wouldn't prescribe this particular medicine, but it had a very good efficacy rate with curing, or at least helping this disease leave your body quickly, or your body, the symptoms leave your body quickly. And literally one person I was sharing with uh, Cleet this morning, one person was on the verge of having to go to ICU. And I was able to provide them with this medicine. And literally within 24 to 36 hours, they did a turnaround. It was that effective. God used it to do it. God was ultimately the healer. But this medicine, this, this cure that I gave them, and they were so grateful. They would have given me anything after that because they were really in a bad way. Now, if I offered you that right now, you might appreciate having it for some future need, but you're not going to appreciate it the way that person did, right? You just won't. Until you're in that position of recognizing, I am in a terrible way. I am, I am, I am up a creek without a paddle. I don't have, I don't, I need help. I need help right now. You don't really appreciate it, the cure. Unfortunately, with the gospel in our culture, what we do is we take people a cure when they don't even know they have a need. And so a lot of people have, oh, sure, I'll take it. And they take it, but there's no appreciation for the efficacy of what that does for them. There's no appreciation for how bad they really are because in their minds... I'm really, you know, I'll, I'll do it because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, there's no appreciation. Do we see that in our country? Do we see that in our church? Yeah. The good news has really not been the good news for us. And the other thing that happens is people, unfortunately, dating like your son who struggled or other people that struggle with addictions... They, they, they try different things to help them cope with the brokenness of our world and they try Jesus like that instead of seeing Him as the deliverer of all things inside, not just from that thing. And so they, they appreciate Him, but He's more like, well, I've tried alcohol, I've tried drugs, I've tried women, I've tried whatever, fill in the blank, I'm going to try Jesus. And so the good news has really come to mean for us in this country, well, it's a fire insurance policy, or yes, He forgives me for my sins, so now I'm covered because of the, the junk I've done in my life. But that's not what the good news meant to the people when Jesus came. The people in Israel, the people who were from Rome... Didn't matter. It, when, when Mark is writing his gospel, 
He starts it off with the beginning of what? The beginning of the good news. And so I think it's really important for us this morning as we begin this real study into the text now of the Gospel of Mark to understand what that word means and what they would have understood. Not necessarily what it means to me and you today because if I ask everybody now, say what the Gospel is. Some of you would write out a plan of salvation. Some of you would write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you... But if I said, hey, what is the gospel, quote, good news mean, I'd still get a bunch of different answers. But up until recently, I don't know that I would have even focused on what it really meant. Even though I, I, I embraced it, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it the way uh, God's just been bringing different people into my life and different um, different. Uh, mentors that have helped me see how better to articulate what the good news is, the gospel. And I think we have a a responsibility as his followers to make sure as we're communicating that to people, we communicate effectively what it is and not fall into the same old traps. I've had to repent because a lot of my early gospel presentations did not really present what the good news was. Yes, it's Jesus for sure. But again, if I give you the cure and you don't know what the ailment is, you're not going to appreciate it. Doesn't mean God can't use it, and He does, but we have a responsibility to be good communicators of His truth. And so as we go in, for those who weren't here last week, just a real quick review of Mark's Gospel. Mark, I mean, and and a little background. Mark is the first Gospel written. And remember, his account of... uh, the Messiah and um, Jesus is the shortest account of all four accounts of the eyewitness accounts. And it's focused more on the story of his life rather than his teaching and his different sermons and discourses. And it's written from Peter's perspective. And uh, it was written primarily to encourage the Roman believers. It was written in Rome to Romans there. I mean, it was written to, I mean, for everybody. You and I, it was written for us as well, but it was written to those people who were there who were going through persecution. And even though he's focused primarily on Jesus as the servant king, he also gets into the kingdom of God, discipleship. And we see a lot of him... uh, alluding to or talking about the messianic secret. Um, we, we see that in the way he presents the story because Jesus is constantly telling people, his followers, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Um, other people, don't tell anybody. People he, you know, people he heals, hey, don't tell anybody. Uh, the, the, the demons are crying out, Jesus, you are Jesus, Messiah. Don't go, shut up, don't tell anybody. And that seems kind of weird because you would think he would want everybody to know, but not everybody was ready for it, and he wasn't ready for it. In the whole first half of the Gospel, he doesn't really reveal his Messiahship. And even after Peter's confession in chapter 8, he's still telling people to be quiet. And if you remember we shared about Mark, Mark's ministry does not start well that we know of when he comes on the scene in Acts. I mean, while he starts okay, he goes off with Barnabas and 
Paul up to Antioch, but then he leaves with them on a missionary journey and he deserts them. That's, it says he deserts them. And it created a schism between Paul and Barnabas. And even though it didn't uh, start well, God restored him and then uses him to write this gospel. He's a helper to Peter. He's a helper to Paul. He was with Luke. And yesterday, I was teaching this on the radio, what we talked last week, and I had a thought about something that I'd never really thought about. And I thought I'd share it with you this morning, is that in Philemon, where Paul is writing and he says, he's telling who's around him, Aristarchus and Mark, Mark is with him in Rome, so he's obviously been restored. But Demas is there. And we know Demas later what? He left. He he deserted. But this was before he deserted. And who's there with him? Mark the deserter, who's back now restored. And, And you don't think that Mark and Demas had conversations about Mark's desertion? You bet. Because Mark would have, just like any of us would, hey, what's your story? How did you meet Paul? Oh, let me tell you my story. And he would have shared with him. And so it's interesting to me how God brings a warning sign to Demas, and yet he still deserts. Can God bring people into your life as a warning to you about things that might be coming up, and you disregard it? I've done that. Yes. And so I just thought that was interesting, but Mark's not a guy who was an apostle, prophet, teacher. He was just a helper, and God used him to write this gospel. And he's used to write what he calls in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And if you look at Matthew and Luke, the whole first three chapters of them, they're getting into... Uh, the birth of Jesus, and it takes them a while to get into the public ministry. Mark jumps right in. It's like the USA Today Gospel, man. He just is right there, tells you what's going on with Jesus right off the bat. And so today as we look at 1 through 8, verses 1 through 8 of Mark 1, we're going to see how God reveals the euangelion, which is the Greek word for good news, or God reveals the good news through his message, through his messengers, plural, through his marker, and through his Messiah. God reveals the good news through these four things. Through in this text, his message, his messengers, through his marker, and through and by marker you'll you'll understand when I get to it what it means and through his Messiah. So we're going to read 1 through 8, and then we're going to come back and kind of work through each one of these. Okay, So starting in verse 1, it says, "...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord." Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair 
and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God. Mark starts off this message, the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. This is an announcement. Hear ye, hear ye, right? He's starting off with this message, the, this message. Now, the word euangelion, it, it literally translates good news or glad tidings. What did it mean? What did it mean to the Jews? What did it mean to the Romans? Well, to the Jews, if you go back, now the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew and Aramaic into the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, if you go back to Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11, in fact, if you want to flip there, you can flip there. I want to read something to you from Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, we've talked about in here, but flip back to Isaiah 40 real quick. And we're going to look at Isaiah 49 to 11. Now, in the Septuagint, we see the Greek word for good news, euangelion, is here. So when you see good news, it's the word euangelion. It's the same word that Mark uses in verse 1. Verse 9, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, herald of euangelion. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of euangelion, or good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and He will gently lead those that are with young. So, what's going on here in Isaiah? All right. The first part of Isaiah deals with what? Judgment. And, and Israel is, is being judged because they've been rebellious. But the second part of Isaiah is talking a lot about their deliverance, about God's mercy, about Messiah. And so he uses that term here, good news, euangelion, to tell them, hey, and he says, go up to a high mountain. Why? Because if you were going to get a message to people, what do you do? You, why, do, why do in in our churches or people are speaking? They put them up on a platform. They want them to be able to project to people, and so that's what's going on. Well, remember in Isaiah fifty two seven is the verse that Paul quotes in Romans ten that says, "How beautiful are the feet uh, on the mountain on the mountains? Why are they going up to the mountains again to project? Are the feet of those that bring what good news? You who publishes peace, who brings good news, euangelion of happiness, who publishes salvation. In other words, he's telling people there's going to be peace. You will be saved. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. He reigns. So to the Jew, it meant the arrival or ascent of the king. It's the euangelion of the arrival of God back on the scene. 
He's going to redeem you. He's going to save you. He's going to bring peace. That's what a Jew would have heard when he read Evangelion. But what about the Romans or the pagans? Well, it's interesting. They found this inscription dated back to about 9 BC over in Rome. And this is what it says. Providence, which has ordered the whole of our life showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men and sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and for those who came after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the God, Augustus, is the beginning for the world of the euangelion that has come to men through him. So basically, this inscription is, is about the arrival of Caesar Augustus on the scene. And it's the, the euangelion, or the good news, is that, hey, a God has arrived in him and is going to save us and bring peace and order. So for the Jews and the pagans, guess what? What did euangelion mean? It was the arrival of a new king and a savior. You get that? So when you think good news, it's the arrival of a king and a savior. Jesus is the Christ, he says in verse 1. Christ is his title. It's the Greek for Messiah. It's anointed one, which referred to the coming king. The Son of God. That shows His lineage. He is the Son of Yahweh. Remember in John 1.49 when Nathaniel met Jesus? Jesus said, Hey, I saw you under the tree. And what did He say? You are the what? You are truly the Son of God. Jesus said, Hey, you saying that because I saw you under the tree? <laughs> so Mark is sharing the story, guys, of the arrival of of the greatest king in history. Now, when you hear the gospel in the past, had you thought about that? Had you thought about it being really the arrival of a king or more just the arrival of a savior? Because you can't really be the savior if you're not the king. That, that, every Jew would have believed that. Every Roman would have believed that. But see, in our country, we actually have whole ministries dedicated to telling people, He doesn't have to be your King. He just wants to be your Savior. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. He, he's not your Savior without being King. Nobody would have believed that in history except in our country. Right now, actually, they, 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 people taught it before, but it's just crazy that that's what goes out there. So that's what Mark is getting across in verse 1. So what's his message? It's the announcement of the king's coming. It's the good news. It's, hey, a king is here. A new king is here. And he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring hope. Well, what about verses 2 and 3? Well, if you look over here in verse 2, it's quoting from... Malachi and Isaiah. But it says Isaiah. Why would it do that? Why would it not say from Malachi and Isaiah? Well, when the writers would write, a lot of times in the Jewish tradition, if they were quoting two prophets, 
they would attribute it to the greater prophet. Malachi was a minor prophet and Isaiah is a major prophet. And so they would have just marked what he did was attached it both those prophecies because every Jew would have known Malachi. They would have known that, yeah, he's, he's referring to Malachi there. They would have known what the text was. Because they were what? Looking for Messiah. These are messianic passages. So they would have known that. And so when he writes, he's saying Isaiah because he was known as a greater prophet. And so, so not only do we see his message as God revealing um, the, the good news, but he's also revealing it through his messengers who? The prophets. The prophets were always messengers of God, right? And so we see these quotes here. And by the way, which is the first prophet in the book of the prophets? Moses. Moses. No, no, no. Oh, no, yeah, no, in the major. Who's the who wrote? I'm talking about in the in the Jewish Bible, you know, in our Old Testament, when you think about the prophets who were written, Isaiah. Isaiah was known as a prophet. He was the first one. Who was the last prophet? Isn't that interesting? That he takes the first prophet and the last prophet to speak before John the Baptist is on the scene and he quotes from those two. And so, because... Mark is starting with these prophecies about the forerunner, the guy who would go in front of Jesus or in front of the Messiah because, guys, you can't have a credible king that's going to come to your town without somebody coming to prepare the way. Um, and so in Malachi 3.1, by the way, you know what Malachi means? Malik in Hebrew is messenger. And so this is Malachi means God's messenger. And so he quotes Malachi first because when a king would go to your city, there would always be a forerunner who would go ahead to announce and start preparing the way for that king's arrival. If there was something that needed to be taken care of, he would do it. Think of it like in our culture, like a Secret Service advance team, right? They're going to go in, hey, he's coming in, we've got to get everything right. So God said, I'm going to send my messenger to get your hearts ready. That's what he's saying through the prophet. And so Malachi's words were the last words, by the way, of the Old Testament. The next voice you hear is going to be the forerunner of Messiah, the promised king. So, And Israel was always looking for the messenger. Like at every Passover, you know what? They would actually send their children out. It was kind of a tradition to go out and see if the, the forerunner was coming. And they would say this saying, maybe the Messiah will come to Jerusalem next year. That's what they would say. Uh, because when the king came, where was he going to go? He says he's going to go to the temple. And so even in John, when John writes about Jesus, the first place he talks about him going is where? The temple. And so um, Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, and it's quoted here, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, Jesus is the messenger of the covenant that Malachi talks about. 
Jesus is the one. What does Jesus do, by the way, in Matthew 5-7 through when He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount? He's taking the covenant and He's teaching them what it is. Remember how he's, re- they, he's going, you think this is what it means, but this is what it really means. And why is He doing that? Because the Pharisees had concocted a, a tradition that basically they determine how to be good enough to be in God's presence. And so Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. And the law now is no longer a schoolmaster when Jesus comes on the scene. Why? Because He's Messiah. He comes and He says, I came not to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. So now, we are Messiah's sons. If you embrace Him, it's no longer following a set of new rules. You're following a person. And so He makes that clear. And so then He quotes from Isaiah 43. And by the way, Isaiah, I don't know if you know this, how many books in in, um, the Bible? How many chapters in Isaiah? In Isaiah, the first 39 chapters deal with judgment. How many chapters in the Old Testament? 39. The second 27 or the deal with mercy, God's mercy and the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? A little mini Bible there. Just thought that was free. No, 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 no cost. All right. Isaiah 43. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So what Mark does is he takes Malachi 3 and Isaiah 4 and he attaches these two verses And he's speaking near term about them going into captivity in Babylon and then God's going to bring them out. Is there a book that talks about that? Yeah, Ezra. Nehemiah, right? Haggai. We talked, I mean, we, we went over that this summer. But Mark takes these verses and what he's doing is he's talking ultimately about the ultimate restoration and Messiah, King Jesus. Remember when uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew writes in Matthew one twenty one, you will call His name Yeshua. You will call His name Yeshua. And He will what? You know what you could say? You will call His name Yeshua and He will Yeshua people from their sins. His name means save or salvation. And so, not just from Egypt, not just from uh, Rome or Babylon, but from ourselves. This is what Matthew writes, and this is what Mark is trying to communicate. Our problem, guys, isn't our government. It's not our economy. It's not the church. Our problem is us. We're alienated from God because of our sin. And so Malachi was the last word of the Old Testament prophet and then there's 400 years of silence after, after him. You got Babylon who rules, you got Persia who rules, you got Greece who rules, and now Rome. And here's what, what God said He says, when you're in your lowest place, Messiah is going to come. Hey, does God sometimes have to get us to the lowest place before we'll listen to him and be ready to receive him? 
Well, over in Malachi 4, the last part of Malachi 4 says, this is the last words kind of written and penned to the people of Israel. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is Malachi 4, 4 through 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Verse 4, he says, keep, keep obeying the law. This is his word to his people through the prophet. Keep obeying the law. Verse 5, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet great and before the great and awesome day. The great and awesome day is not a good thing, guys. It's judgment. And do you know at Passover, one of the, they would have a chair at the table for who, David? Elijah. Yeah, they, and they would look for Elijah, the forerunner. They, would, they, would, they wanted that day to come because they knew it would be a good thing for those that were His, but it's judgment for the world. And then in verse 6, he says, before the final judgment, God's Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Do you know what the mark of a godly man was then and is still this today? It's what Deuteronomy 6 says in the law. This law shall be on your heart. Teach it to your children diligently. Talk about it when? When you sit down? When you walk? When you uh, lie down? When you rise up? But put it like on your doorpost. That's why this to this day, you walk around in Israel... On the doorpost, they have the Shema. The mezuzah there. It's a, it's a little thing on every doorpost there. Why did they do that? Because that's the mark of God's people. And so, His messengers, Isaiah, all the way through Malachi, it's not just Isaiah and Malachi, all the way through, what did they constantly tell God's people? <clears throat> What were they telling them? Constantly. Hmm? They were prophets, right? So what did a prophet do? Here's the prophetic order. Preach God's Word. Get it out there. Tell people what God says. Second, they called people to live by God's Word. They didn't just tell people what it was. They actually called them to hear and obey, to shema it. Third, they told them what would happen if they didn't obey. And then fourth, they gave people hope in Messiah to one day deliver them from their disobedience. And so Malachi is saying, the next voice you're going to hear is going to be Elijah. And guess what? 400 years of silence goes by and who shows up on the scene? John, Mark is writing about John the Elijah. Here's a man, John. That's his marker. This is the one. This is the one. John the Baptist is the marker. He's the Elijah that Malachi was talking about. How do we know that? Well, anybody can say they're anybody, right? Anybody can say, well, I'm that guy. 
But the king doesn't just go show up and say I'm a king. Anytime in the Middle East or that part of the world, if a king was coming, there was always somebody that went ahead to announce his coming. And Malachi says, the next voice you're going to hear before Messiah is going to be the John, Elijah. And he mentions Elijah specifically. And if you remember, what did the Pharisees ask John the Baptist in the wilderness? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Well, that was a dumb question to ask, are you the Messiah? There was no forerunner for John the Baptist. He just shows up. But when they asked him, was he Elijah? He said no. Why do you think he said no? Do you think he knew he was Elijah? Say again? He wasn't there. But he was the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi. I've always wondered why he said no when they asked him. Because why didn't he do that? Well, it might have something to do with casting pearls before swine. Maybe they were trying to trap him. Who knows why? He was Elijah. He was the Elijah that Malachi talked about. He was the marker. And, and John bring or John Mark, I mean, brings it out in Mark four through Mark one, four through six. Remember what, uh, if, you, if you read in the Gospel account of Luke, and by the way, John the Baptist is mentioned in all four Gospels. And in the Gospel of Luke, his parents, you get some insight into what the angel said to his parents. And you know what he said? In Luke 1.17, he will have the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah. Angel Gabriel. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's what we just read. John's dad was a priest. Yes, Zacharias. Yeah, Zacharias. And, and his mom was named Elizabeth. It was a miracle that he was born because they were at the age you shouldn't have had children. Like Abraham. And, and so he was told he, he's going to be in the desert. He's going to live in the desert. And do you know that John, Luke 180 says he spent his whole life in the desert, the wilderness. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, and so for, that's exactly right, and 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 so he got ahead of me. That's, <laughs> that's all right. No, that's a, that means you're a good disciple, man. That's good. Um, but Luke one eighty, Luke Luke one eighty says he spent his entire life there, and what? Sh- where should he have spent his life, guys? Yeah, his dad was a priest. He should have been at the temple serving. He should have been there. But it was so corrupt that just like Elijah the prophet who spent his time out in the wilderness, do you realize they spent their time in almost the same area? Like up and down the Jordan near Jericho, up south of the Sea of Galilee, up and down there. And he spent his life baptizing people there. He baptized in the wilderness. That's what we read. He was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. Now, this is strange because no Jew was baptized. They, 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 and if you look in the Old Testament, there's only one person in all the Old Testament who was baptized. You know who it was? Naaman. A pagan foreigner who had what? Leprosy was always symbolic of sin. And when Naaman came to Elijah, 
Elisha to be healed, what did he say? Go baptize yourself in the uh, Jordan River. Go be baptized. And he was told to be baptized how many times? Seven times. And did he get excited about that? No, he didn't want to do it at all. He says, I've got cleaner water back in my country. I don't want to do this. It was humiliating. He had to take his clothes off. He was a general. He had to take his garb off to go expose his leprosy to the world to go be baptized. And he was. Every Jew knew that story. So when a guy was talking to a Jew about being baptized, what did that mean for that Jew? Well, it meant that he had to basically consider himself like a Gentile because those were the only people baptized at this point in time. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, they baptized you, basically symbolizing doing away with your old pagan lifestyle and now you're going to be in the covenant with God. And it was symbolic. And so for a Jew to be baptized, they're saying, we're not ready for Messiah. You know, we aren't worthy of Messiah. And, and they had to confess. And so... And Doug, it, was, it plays out in the Gospels where they, they say, well, we don't, it's not, we don't need to be baptized, but we're, we're sons of Abraham. They... Their, their salvation was in their lineage and exactly it was but John was preaching to them a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin he's saying return to God and repent now repent means to recognize our sin in light of God's holiness and to look to him for mercy and sorrow. And like David said, they didn't think they needed to look to him for mercy because they were children of Abraham. They weren't looking to him in sorrow and fear. Except now, literally, some people think like 300 to 400,000 of them was baptized during John's ministry up and down the river. But guys, forgiveness of God, it isn't earned, it's given. No one is entitled to go to heaven to be in his presence no one and listen that's not a popular message especially during that time right i mean like john the baptist or john the baptizer rejected jesus gave that message rejected peter gave that message rejected paul gave that message rejected if you start talking to people about that they ain't gonna like it nobody likes to be told they're not worthy that they can't they're not entitled especially today but all Judea and Jerusalem was going out to be baptized, saying, I'm not ready to meet the king, but I want to be. That's ultimately what they're saying when they go out there. But no one is accepted by God apart from His mercy and grace, which is Jesus, right? No one. Forgiveness and God's righteousness is not something we can ever earn. Now, I know we say we know that, but a lot of times in our life, we don't display that. We act like we can earn it somehow. What we receive is a gift, and that is the gospel of Jesus. Salvation is free, but somebody has to pay for it. He had to pay for our sins. It wasn't to deliver them from Rome. It was to deliver them from themselves. So He is the suffering King, and that's good news, right? And then in verse 6, it says John was wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Why? 
He was eating locusts and wild honey. Why? He was living in the desert by the Jordan. Why? Because Elijah did all those things. In fact, if you go back to Zechariah 13.4, Zechariah is talking about false prophets. And it says, On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. So people were dressing like Elijah because guess who set the trend for prophets and what they wore? True prophets. Elijah with a hairy garment. Back in 2 Kings 1.8, it says he wore, you know, people were looking for him and, and they answered the king that was asking about where Elijah was. He wore a garment of hair with a beather, a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah was the one who set the fashion trend for hair. It wasn't hairy. It was just like you know, goat hair or animal hair that was weaved, and it was rough looking. It wasn't like most people wore like linen stuff, right? And so he ate locust and wild honey in the wilderness, and he lived in the desert just like Elijah. And in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said, John was Elijah. He was the forerunner. He was the marker. So God revealed his Messiah through what? Through his message, his announcement, through his messengers, all the prophets. And John was the last Old Testament prophet. And finally, he was the marker. And then in verse 7 and 8, he reveals it through his Messiah. Verse 7, after, he, after me comes he who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to unstrap his, his sandals. And here's what's interesting. Do you know that Jewish, if you were a servant and you were Jewish, you were not required to, to unstrap the sandals or touch the feet of anybody. Because that was the lowest of low, and Jews weren't even required to do that. And what John is saying is, I'm not worthy to even touch him. I'm not worthy to do the lowest job for him. Why? He's deity. This is Yahweh's son. This is Yah- this is God. And God's messenger is not taking credit for himself as he's out there, not getting puffed up because 300,000 people are coming to him to be baptized. He's pointing to Jesus. I think we've kind of lost some of that today. (laughs) That he's pointing to Jesus. Remember what he said in John 3.30 when people said, hey, hey, more people are going to him than are coming to you. He said, I must what? Decrease. And he must increase. That's what, because he's Messiah. And in verse 8, he says, I just baptized with water. What I'm doing is symbolic. What I'm doing, you're being baptized. This water ain't saving. In fact, later in Acts, remember, there were people who were baptized by John, but they had not yet received what, David? The Holy Spirit. Because John said here in verse, or Mark says here in verse 8 about John, saying, I baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Like in Joel 2, and it shall come to pass afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters. They will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Our young men will see visions. 
Even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, Joel says. Over in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no one will need to teach anybody saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Why? Because they're going to have the Spirit in. And then Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, the prophet says. You will be clean from your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'm going to give you a soft heart. I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So guys, if that is good news for us, it should be. Why? Because the new king is going to bring us forgiveness. The new king is going to put his spirit within us. The new king is going to equip us to be in his service and enable us to keep his commandments and his statutes. Your life will have purpose that it was designed for. Your life will have meaning that He intended when He created you. And you will be back in fellowship with the Father. Is that not good news? Great. That's great news. That's great news. And so that's what Mark... This is his introduction. And he, this is his prologue as he's now about to now unfold how Jesus begins to who he is how he begins to demonstrate who he is but it starts with the announcement so I don't, I don't know where you are I don't know what goes on in your life I don't know if you feel empowered but guys if you have the Holy Spirit in you you are empowered to keep his commandments so it's not oh I can't do this you know I've tried I can't do it no he broke deep addictions within me through the power of his spirit and, and I'm telling you, that, that doesn't mean that those addictions don't tempt me. That doesn't mean that when I walk through certain places or go by certain things that I'm not tempted. But I rely on the Spirit. And when I rely on the Spirit, He gives me strength. When I think I've got it whipped is when He lets me fall to come back to the cross to remind me it's not about me and my strength. It's Him and His strength. He gets the glory. He is the King. He is sovereign. And that's the euangelion. So, that's Mark 1, 1 through 8. And if, if God has surfaced anything in your life you need to repent of, can I encourage you to repent? It, just own it with Him. And come back to the cross. He doesn't want you to walk around with a, a weight around your neck with this sin that has entangled you. Like Paul says, throw it off. Give it to Him. That's what He wants. He's the King. He rules over it. He rules over it. So, David, would you close our time in prayer? Father God Almighty, thank You for today.